Hi, and welcome to Truth and Learning. I'm Matt Richter, and I'm here with my friend and colleague, Will Talheimer. Hey, Will, how are you? Hey, Matt, I am doing very well. Excellent, excellent. Uh, today, we have an exciting episode because we actually have really interesting people on the show today. Finally. I know. We I know, right? <laughs> this is a, actually, our previous guests have all been fascinating, too. Uh, I, I should probably be careful how I phrase that. Well, no, you were talking about you and me just talking. Yeah, exactly. Around. People don't want to hear that. Exactly. So, so you know, when I'm in France, and uh, the big joke is my jokes don't work in French, and then one of my, whoever I'm with, my colleague will then say, or in English as well. So, <laughs> so apparently, I've learned that through the first that. four episodes. Yeah, we've just experienced that. So. Uh, anyway, today we're actually going to talk about three topics that uh, uh, I find exciting to, to be a part of. The first is why we should be negative and debunk things. And I, I think that topic has multiple layers to it, such as debunking uh, and debunking things in a way that can sometimes feel negative. Those feel like two different ideas to me. Um, the second segment is for us to have a conversation about the top research-based learning factors. In other words, what are the techniques we should use to enhance learning in our instructional designs? And then lastly, you're going to interview two people we admire greatly. Uh, one is Ryan Watkins, and Ryan is the host of one of the podcasts we've set up this show be similar to. What is Ryan's show? It's called Parsing Science. I love that. And it's a more general podcast than ours, right? It incorporates things beyond just specifically learning science. And it's a great show. And Ryan's a delight to, to listen to as you talk with him. And then our friend, our colleague, and someone we both admire greatly, Julie Dirksen, is going to join you uh, for uh, the continuation of this topic uh, and conversation around can journalism exist in our field and should it and where is it and why are we doing something about it in other words should we be reporting and doing more investigative work around the types of information uh, that gets uncovered and used in the field and the people who are doing the work and the companies who are out there selling the work uh, should we be investigating uh, as a way of ensuring we're doing all the right things. Well, did I capture that question accurately and the way you were envisioning it? Beautiful. And we're right. going to repeat that question specifically in the interview. So, And actually, during the interviews, here's what I want you all to do. Will is going to read that question so it's, it's read the same way because as, as those of you who have listened to our previous episode know, Will loves consistency. And so he is going to read that question and you will hear that beautiful, beautiful radio voice. Because as you all know, Will and I both have faces for Oh no, you did it again. Every episode, my friend. Ring, I'm going to come over there to New York and I'm going to wring your neck. Anytime, you're, my home is yours. You know that. <laughs> so shall we go into our first segment? Should we Best jump right in? Segment one. All right. So I think your ideas are stupid. I think they're crap. I think I, I've read many of your articles and I just can't follow your, your rational way of thinking. So, um, uh, Will, 
why do you insist that we be negative and debunk things? Well, so this segment is really a reaction to things I've been hearing out there in the learning sphere. Is that a word? Learning sphere? It's a good word. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I've heard people say, well, you know, I just don't like debunk. I don't like the word debunking. It seems so negative or why don't like to be negative about things? You know, we really should focus on the positive. And yeah, sure, we should do that. But at the same time, I'm kind of thinking that sometimes to move forward, you have to be real. You have to, you know, call something bad when it's bad. I mean, I, I kind of, you know, I've been reading this book. Uh, it's a biography of Frederick Douglass, and uh, he's a you know, former slave. He was an abolitionist. He went around and gave speeches all across the United States back in the 1800s, and he said, slavery is wrong. And, you know, sometimes you just got to call things out. And, and I, I think about, you know, they talk about political campaigns and being negative works, right? And uh, so I, I just, you know, kind of think that we have to put a stake in the ground sometimes and call learning styles ineffective and a problem and a waste of energy and resources. So, so Will, let me, let me just stop you here because I think we have a, a, a problem in definition. And I fundamentally think that a lot of people are debating or posing that something is a negative thought or a negative attack when really it's just taking evidence and using that evidence to either debate a point or prove an idea is wrong. And that should not be viewed as a negative thing. That should be viewed as a positive movement forward. And I think too often people are misinterpreting um, conflicting evidence that may be posed politely as a negative attack when or debunking as an attack. Instead, we should be viewing attacks as something that's uh, offensive and insulting. If I make fun of your hair or I make fun of your face, these are insults. These are negative. These are attacks. But it is not an attack to say, hold on, there's something fundamentally wrong with learning styles or with DISC or with the learning. What do you think? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I agree with you. What you're saying is that uh, personal attacks, ad hominem attacks are bad. And those are not appropriate. But it but uh, being critical of ideas or concepts or things that have research or don't have research, those are okay. But I don't think that's what people are saying. I'll, I'm going to read you a direct quote. It's not about debunking stuff for me. We focus too much on tearing stuff down. Why not focus on what's working and do more of that? It doesn't help anyone to be negative and to pull something down. Well, don't you, don't you find that to be a function of the same idea? I mean, they're no. rejecting the idea that we should uh, uh, be critical. They're rejecting the idea that, that we should, in, in, in every case, look at something and say, why won't this work? Well, I, 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 I don't I mean, obviously, I can't get into their head, but what they said seemed to suggest that um, I'm not going to focus on negative ideas. I'm not going to be critical of ideas. I'm going to focus on what's working. 
<laughs> well, then I think they're going to have a problem identifying what's actually working. <laughs> well, yeah. But some of my best experiences uh, in thinking, in learning, have been uh, when people have tried to destroy my ideas. And, and when they're successful, oh boy, do I learn. Right? I mean, in graduate school, we're trained to be critical. In fact, if uh, you, your, your cohort doesn't try and destroy your, your thesis, no one respects you. Right. Well, yeah, but Matt, you and I, we embrace criticism because it makes us better or we've developed a thick skin or we're too stupid to pay attention to these insults that we're getting. But I think that uh, the, the, what was voiced in that quote I'm talking carefully because I don't want to reveal whether it's a man or a woman. What's revealed in that quote is that, you know, any negativity at all, whether it's a personal attack or whether it's an attack on ideas or skepticism, is not to be accepted. And I just think that's bad for all of us. Uh, how do we get better? And I think we need to be, we need to suck it up a little bit. We need to embrace those who are doing debunking those who are being critical, those who stand up and gently, kindly uh, critique things are doing us all a service, and we need to embrace that. I just uh, finished an article on leadership, and um, in it, I talked about five myths of leadership, five leadership myths. And the first one is that everyone's a leader. And the folks I've asked to read it um, I wanted to see where, how far I'm pushing uh, in a corporate setting, in this, right? Because if I give it to you, you'll, I'm going to give it to you when I'm done, right? And have you attack the constructs. But I wanted to see, am I pushing too hard for a corporate audience? And, oh my gosh, the pushback I'm getting just on the concept that everyone can be a leader, that everyone should be a leader, that, that you can teach leadership. These are indeed provocative and there's a lot of room for us to debate it, but it's um, but the pushback is I'm being too negative, and is there a way to reframe these myths not even as myths, but as something more positive? And so I, I'm agreeing with you that we are certainly running into this frequently, um, and I find it highly problematic because it it's a refusal uh, to explore how something works and if something's right. Yeah. Nothing much more to say. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Tiagi runs an activity, um, and I, I forget what he calls it. I, um, the way it works is we throw out uh, three numbers, like two, four, six, and our two, four, five, two, four, five. And we ask people to think, can you, can you see a pattern in this number phrase, right? So these three numbers, what do you, what do you think the pattern is? Here's another one, four, eight, nine, right? And, People are all yelling out the pattern is 2N plus 1, right? And then we ask them to start uh, sharing with us uh, examples of the pattern, and they all stick to the 2N plus 1. But uh, the, the, that's not the pattern. They take two data points, and they assume they know the pattern. So we give them another example. Uh, we give them uh, 4,000. 4,021, 82,000. And this 
screws them up royally, right? Because the, it, it breaks their pattern. Uh, and so they get stuck and they freeze. And at the end, uh, we'll give them an example of four, two, seven. And we'll say this is an example that isn't con uh, congruent with the pattern. And people will say, what? That makes no sense. And the trick is that one of the best ways to understand how something works is to understand where the boundaries are for things that don't work. That it's often the negative side of things that helps provide boundaries and a foundation for understanding how something indeed does function. It's That's a good nice. Yeah, it's a fun activity. Um, but I'm, I'm shocked at how many times people don't know how to do that. But when I go into a physics classroom or a psychology classroom and we do that, they get it every time. Because in academia, we're trained to break it. Right? There's a, I think there's a, you won't find this as much in academia. You'll find it more in business. Well, let me ask you this. So there's been these voices out there that don't like the negative. What's, you know, I guess we could, maybe they're being negative about positivity. I don't know, but negative, about, positive about negativity, one of these things. But anyway, so uh, is this an issue? Do you think we need to um, confront, is this hurting uh, our selves as learning professionals this is this hurting our field is there anything we can do i'm, I'm i don't have the answers i'm just wondering well I, I think it's hurting our field certainly i think it's also possibly a u.s canadian phenomenon and a little bit less so in europe and and probably it's a phenomenon in certain other countries and less so in others right i think there's um there's a cultural tolerance for being blunt and bordering on almost rude in certain countries. Like in, in France, people have no problem telling me I'm an idiot. Um, and in the U.S., people will take 10 minutes beating around the bush to point out I'm an idiot. Um, so, I, so I think there's a cultural component to it. And I think that it is, is crucial to the industry for us to have better conversations about evidence-based practices. You know, we, we can't, we have no peer review channels uh, per se in our field uh, that are independent of, of other fields, right? I mean, a lot of the learning science stuff is, is embedded within psychology. It's not a learning science in field itself, right? So we don't have a lot of the built-in mechanisms that are in other fields. So if we're unwilling to be critical, then we are indeed hurting ourselves, especially with those cultural factors. You know, I'm wondering about our role models. You know, certainly those of us who are doing the sort of research to practice uh, stuff try to uh, tell it like it is and call <laughs> something bad when we think it's bad. Uh, but I wonder about our trade organizations, the magazine articles that are out there. Well, this is going to get into our journalism conversation. Yeah. Hey, right? perfect segue. Right? So uh, people might think that's actually planned. Well, I say we move right into it. So, Will, um, before I, I start playing the interviews, um, would you like to just give a, an overview of both who they are, Ryan and Julie, and also the question that you posed to them that you and I are going to talk about afterward? Sure. 
So, uh, well, the question, I'm not going to go through the specific question because it's very long. And uh, let me start out by saying, you know, one of the things that you and I wanted to do was to bring in other voices and to ask them some questions about, you know, what they thought. And this first question, uh, it's a little bit of a complicated question. And we really, we probably shouldn't have led with this one. But fortunately, Ryan and Julie have rescued us because they've come up with really good answers and will get us thinking about uh, our field. But the question in general is, can there be journalism in the workplace learning field? Is there journalism? If there is journalism, are we doing it well, et cetera? And uh, Ryan Watkins is a professor at George Washington University. He also has a podcast with Doug Lay. It's a brilliant podcast. It's called Parsing Science. And what they do is they ask uh, researchers about sort of the background on why they came up with the research, all, what, the, what they had to do to create it, et cetera, et cetera. And Julie Dirksen, as friends of the pod will know, can I say friends of the pod since we're just getting started? I, I think you can, yeah. Okay. Uh, is a great research to practice uh, guru, research translator, uh, author of the book Design for How People Learn, etc. And uh, we've asked them both the same question. So with that, let's just get into it. And then you and I will come back at the end and we will give some final thought. Great. Excellent. So here's Will and Ryan. All right, I am delighted to have Ryan Watkins with me. He is a professor at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., co-host of the Parsing Science Podcast and uh, the developer of the We Share Science Platform. Welcome, Ryan. Oh, thanks, Well, I'm glad to be on the show. So as you know, I have one question for you. Um, but before I ask you that one question, let me ask you, you know, what, what's going on with you? Is there anything you'd like to share about what you're doing? In addition to the podcast in which we focus on really interdisciplinary science and bringing research from diverse disciplines together into one place for listeners. This parallels closely with an initiative that I'm leading at the university, which is a new interdisciplinary PhD program where we're bringing together researchers in data science, computer science, education, psychology, both IO psychology as well as cognitive neuroscience psychology, along with colleagues in public health and a few other places to take a close look at some of the research-based issues around how do we prepare people for the future of work in a society where we have more and more use of intelligent technologies, maybe not as far as what we would consider artificial intelligence, but technologies that use a lot of data science and predictive analytic tools to help guide our decisions in the classroom, in the training room, or in work in general. So that's been real exciting, like herding cats most days, but it's brought me into lots of conversations that I wouldn't have been in otherwise, and that's always exciting. 
wow. led me to read research that I wouldn't have read otherwise. Wow, that is great. And are you guys uh, and gals, are you producing uh, things for publication? Are you, is there any way people can learn about that? That sounds really fascinating. Yeah, um, we have a website, of course. Um, that's go.gwu.edu slash HTC for Human Technology Collaborations. And we have, we started four doctoral students as our first cohort last fall. So they'll be entering their second year this year and producing second year research projects. And those will be some of the first publications coming out of our lab. And just to give you an idea of some of the different things that they're looking at, we have one student who's looking at, can we actively monitor and respond to the cognitive load of learners while they're in VR learning environments. So can you design VR systems that will actively monitor people's cognitive load and so that you can optimize so that you don't end up feeding too much information too quickly or too little information too slowly? Initially, he's going to be using probably EEG, where they put the little rig on your head and measure all the different things going on in your brain. But then we want to correlate that and transition to retinal scanning. A lot of the new VR systems have a little camera that will watch your eyes and can monitor what's going on with your retina. And then you can use that data to monitor cognitive load, we hope. So that's the research questions that we're initially looking at is, can we actually have biological markers for cognitive load rather than surveys after the fact of saying, were you stressed while you were learning this? Wow. That's brilliant. Yeah. And so I, fun things like that are what we're up to. That is awesome. And I, I love the interdisciplinary approach. I mean, the world is so complicated now and learning is so complicated that it really is going to require something like that to make the big break, breakthroughs. Yeah. Um, it's been really fun. And I've learned a ton, to say the least. And I think that it's where we'll find the big breakthroughs are at these interdisciplinary intersections, bringing together the pieces that are coming out of computer science and data science that are often much more computational and quantitative focused than we may be used to in the training and learning industry. But they can give us significant insight into both what's happening as well as predictions about what will happen in the future. Not always precise as we would want, of course. But we're getting there, and it's through that combination, I believe, of what they know through the data and what we know through working with people is where we'll find the sweet spots. That is awesome. I am so envious. <laughs> Seriously. All right, so let me ask you my question. Okay, and this question, we're just starting this podcast, and this is a, a new segment we're trying, um, and probably we've picked a question that's sort of out of left field to start out with, but <laughs> that's fine. I enjoy those. Oh, good. So uh, here's the question. A free press, or what we now call journalism, is seen as essential to democracy, enabling the truth to be told and the citizens to know how to contribute, how to vote, etc. Industries benefit, too, from journalism by cleansing the industry of false claims and giving members of that industry insight into what is good and what is bad. What do you think about the learning industry? Do we have journalism at all? And if we do, is it any good? If we do, 
who are the exemplars, the shining stars, the Woodward and Bernsteins, the 60 Minutes, the Center for Investigative Journalism, et cetera? Ah, that is a good question. Uh, it brings together several different disciplines to kind of figure out what's going on here. My initial observation would be based on the question is it's important to recognize that investigative journalism is just one of the many forms that journalism can take. Now, sometimes it's the most exciting and we get the big wow factors from things like the Watergate investigation and so forth. But in order to really support democracy and to do the types of things the questioner asked about for an industry, I think it's really that day-to-day type of reporting that probably carries most of the weight. So while the investigative journalism is part of what should take place, of course, uh, I don't think that we should discount other forms of journalism. And some of that we already have going on. So we do have some forms of journalism within the industry. I know, for example, that Training Magazine has been going for over 50 years covering the industry. It's not really investigative type of journalism, but they do a good job of covering a lot of the positive stories coming out of our industry. Now, could we use some other types of journalism? Probably, but that is a substantial contribution that we don't want to overlook, even if it's not the type of journalism that gets the big wow factors. But it's interesting to hear what took place at conferences covering the news of our industry. My second observation in thinking about the question would be that the context for journalism has changed and it's continuing to change. We don't quite know where journalism will land. And of course, this isn't going to be news to any of your listeners. Um, We're all fairly aware of this, that the growth of the internet um, has really gutted the journalism profession. I think 10, 15 years ago, we thought that a lot of people would be inspired into citizen journalism and that it would would democratize journalism um, and how we get our information. I think sitting here in 2019 and looking back, many of us have come to recognize that, you know, maybe journalism really was a profession that had some skills associated with it. And when we leave it to amateurs, we just don't get those good quality products that we were getting when we had professionals doing it. And now, That analogy, of course, probably sounds fairly familiar to people in training and education, where we too are skilled profession, or so we like to think. And when you leave it to people who do not have that training and skills, you get a lower quality product typically. So I think recognizing that journalism has value and it does cost money for people to get those skills is important. But where journalism lands through all this transition, I'm not sure if anyone really knows. When we get to um, professional journalism within an industry, so for example, if we are thinking about what would journalism look like in the industry of learning and development, I think it could take several forms. And I think we have fairly good amateur journalists already in the profession. This isn't sufficient, but these are probably a necessary ingredient to the industry. And I think, for example, of Patty Shank and her Twitter feed, where she keeps a lot of us in the industry up to date with what's going on. Um, Now, she's not a professional journalist, and I don't believe that she wants to be, 
So I don't have expectations for her to do investigative journalism and to check all the data and fact. She's more on the day-to-day side. This is what's happening. This is what you should be aware of. So I guess then that brings us to the question of, should we have more journalism within our industry? And I think we could benefit somewhat from it, but I'm not sure if we're a big enough industry or if anyone's going to be willing to necessarily pay for it. Because again, a good journalist has skills and that costs money. It costs money for them to develop them. It costs money for you to pay for those. And I'm not sure if there's an audience out there for investigative stories that expose that Some company has claimed to apply cognitive load theory to their instructional design, but they get you. They really didn't do it. There aren't that many of those stories, probably, and I'm not sure how much people are willing to pay to have to support that type of journalism. If I think about your story with the Kirkpatrick framework, it was a great piece of investigative citizen journalism, but my guess is it's a fairly rare case of plagiarism that has gone unnoticed for decades. This isn't something you could make a living doing (laughs) and have an audience (laughs) willing to pay money. As I know, as I know. Yeah. Um, So, and I hope that it's a rare case that most of our people in our industry, I believe, are honest players and are doing good hard work. Now, where I do think that we can start to gain some of the benefits without formal journalism is to really look back to ourselves as consumers of the information. And I think even myself and what I look at when I'm reading online, I get a little lazy at times. I don't do my own background research. If I see a company claiming something, I don't necessarily read into all their documentations to see whether it's true. But I think it should come back to us. And we have to be very informed consumers of information. And that's true, I guess, not only just within industry news, but within our general news as well, in an era of uh, so-called fake news and post-truth society and all of that, uh, comes back to us to be wise consumers. Now, the industry can help, and I think more transparency should be required. And I'd like if magazines like Training Magazine and journals in the different professional societies would all require greater transparency about what the claims are, what the research is. Yeah, those are my thoughts on the question. It's a great question. Ryan, that was amazing, (laughs) I have to say. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for thinking about that and sharing those insights. You know, I'm going to have to sit back and think about what you've told us because uh, I hadn't thought of many of those things that you brought up. Really good points. Thank you. Oh, no problem. And now here's Will talking with Julie Dirksen. I am here with Julie Dirksen. Julie? Hi there. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, So you know that Matt and I are doing this new podcast. We're trying it out. And uh, one of the things we're going to do is ask people questions and get their quick responses to it. And the first question we came up with is like ridiculously hard. So I thought I would ask you. Uh, 
think about whether you can answer this. So are uh, you ready? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, before we jump in, let me tell, I'm, I'm sure most of our listeners know Julie Dirksen, uh, famous research to practice guru in the workplace learning field, author of the book Design for How People Learn. Right? Yeah. Did I get that right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, well done. Yes. And Usable Learning is her website. And also, I'm going to plug, uh, she's got a new course uh, online. Julie, tell us about that. Uh, the course is called Sticky Learning, and it's basically strategies for engagement and attention that are hopefully, you know, more based on uh, evidence and some of those kinds of practice than some of the other things that we've been talking about. It doesn't all need to be unicorns and rainbows to, uh, to gather your learner's attention, things like relevance and um, you know, making sure that the material is useful and applicable are usually better strategies for that. And so this is a course all about the different ways that you can um, create more engaged learners uh, and hopefully stickier in terms of their attention, but also stickier in terms of their retention over time. Uh, and it's called Sticky Learning and it's available at designbetterlearning.com. Designbetterlearning.com. Excellent. How did you get that nice URL? Beautiful. Uh, I, I, have a slightly compulsive URL registration habit. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's go with this uh, difficult question. And it's a little long, so here we go. A free press, or what we now call journalism, is seen as essential to democracy, enabling truth to be told and citizens to know how to contribute, how to vote, etc. Industries can benefit too by cleansing the industry of false claims and giving members of that industry insight into what is good and what is bad. What do you think about the learning industry in terms of journalism? Do we have journalism at all? If we do, is it any good? If we do, are there exemplars, shining stars, the Woodward and Bernstein's, the 60 Minutes, the Center for Investigative Journalism? What do you think about journalism and the workplace learning? Yeah, well, one of the challenges for those kinds of things is always what is the economic model to support that effort, because frequently that effort doesn't necessarily have revenue attached to it itself. Um, and we know that that's happening to the newspaper industry right now, right? They're, um, they're trying to figure out in the age of internet advertising and Craigslist and all of these kinds of things, how do they continue to fund that kind of work? Um, within industries, and, and especially industries that are on the smaller side, which ours, I think, is, um, the question is, how do people get paid to do that kind of work? And so I think there are good, trustworthy sources of information. Um, the challenge is that some of the cues that should indicate that a source is trustworthy don't always work. Um, I have seen things from people with PhDs that I think is absolute nonsense. Um, and then I know some people who have PhDs who I trust absolutely. And you know, if they tell me something, I'm going to take it for, uh, put a lot of credence, credence into that. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of sources that I think are good, um, I think the research group with the eLearning Guild is doing a great job with stuff. Um, Jane Bozarth is running that. And I have 100% confidence that she is trying to ensure that everything that goes through there has that, that evidence or research base behind it and has, has you know, validity is best we know. Um, the answers to things change over time. And so sometimes what was sort of the best science we had 15 or 20 years ago uh, changes. Um, 
an example of that is the um, ego depletion stuff and the Roy Baumeister was a really interesting area of research and then it's come under significant fire for not being uh, you know for not being able to be replicated well and so you know there's there's schools of thought where people will tell you the best thing that they know at the time and and then things will change um, the issue which I think you found and I found and everybody else who's sort of trying to work in that research to practice space, people like Patty Shank or, you know, Clark Wynn or whatever is, um, as you well know, because you've done these research reports, that there's an enormous amount of effort that goes into trying to make sure that you've backed this. And there's a real question of kind of who pays for that? Um, and where does the, you know, do we pay for it ourselves with our time because we think it's important? Or do, is there some kind of model where, you know, that's, that has, uh, value and can be supported by professional organizations. And I, so I think that's the big challenge is clearly this needs to happen. Who's doing it and what are the cues that tell you somebody's trustworthy when they're, when they're talking about it. So. That's great. Yeah, it is. You know, it's, it's about economics. A lot of things just come down to economics. If somebody can't make a living doing it, will they continue to do it? Well, they might if they love it. And they think it's important and they can do it if they have the time and the wherewithal, but it's not easy to ask somebody to do that all the time. Yeah. And, you know, part of it is the degree to which we ask people to, uh, that we really want, um, you know, research to practice guidelines that are based not just on, hey, this one interesting study over here, but actually based on a review of the literature so that we're confident about the results. Um, and like I said, you know, I, the, the Roy Baumeister stuff, there was a pretty actually broad research pool behind that. And so the fact that it got knocked down quite so hard was, a, was surprising to a lot of us. Um, but the, uh, there's not just kind of reading research papers and following kind of what's going on, then there's this bigger question of looking at a preponderance of the research and making sure that that's supported. And that is not a reasonable expectation for a practitioner. There's just too much research out there. It's time consuming to do it. Um, so somebody who is more in this kind of research practitioner role is better suited to it. Also, you know, I can mostly kind of keep up with the statistics, but I won't pretend that I can like spot really, um, you know, uh, infrequent, like, but egregious things. I, I have to rely on somebody who actually understands that stuff better than I do to point out that, oh, that study is really persuasive, except for these problems in the research methods or something like that. And so we, we get into the smaller and smaller pool. Um, I think there's also a challenge in how disconnected practitioners are from the academics because there are academics that deal with training, instructional design, you know, all of those kinds of things. And I don't know that, I don't know what field is better at that, but um, I do know that the people who I went to graduate school with who went into academia and um, the people I know who went into more workplace, you know, applied, you know, it's fun to see them when we run into each other, but we don't, there's not a much a lot of cross pollination between those between mm. those kinds of things, and so somebody whose job it is actually to do research and to investigate interesting questions is not necessarily asking the questions that are going to be most helpful for us over um, you know kind of on the ground getting the you know getting the training curriculums built and some of those kinds of things 
and that's a problem I'm, I'm not sure how to fix, but um, uh, might be worth looking into. Yeah, no, I've, I've often wondered about that. You know, the, there, there seems almost to be a role. You know, you've got the academic researchers, and they, they're funded um, by a university. And so they do the research, and uh, they don't usually get paid to do the research, but they have a job, right? So that's part mm-hmm. of their job. Um, they're also teaching and, doing, you know, getting grant money, et cetera. Um, and then you have the practitioners on the other hand. And, but whose role is it to sort of do that translation from one to the other? Because the researchers, the academic researchers, they don't have time and they don't really know the world of the practitioners. And the practitioners are not really, even if they're motivated, they're probably not going to be that good at looking at the research. That sort of takes some specialized skills and knowledge. And so who's going to do that? And the academy doesn't want to pay for the, these research to practice people. Right. right. Um, so who does it? And it's just sort of, it sort of gets lost. Yeah. So I want to switch you to, you know, you and I are research to practice folks, but you know, there's other aspects that some journalism could look at. Um, you think about, you know, the regular media and they look at, bad players, right? So they look at, you know, if, um, if there's a person that, that, that is scandalized, you know, doing something terrible, you know, sexual harassment or something, people pay attention to that. Um, if there's a company that's doing uh, antitrust stuff or, you know, uh, squelching competition, you know, regular journalist, you know, New York Times, you know, Miami Herald, whoever might go and take a look at that. So, you know, you and I are interested in the research side of this and, and what best practices are, but there's other aspects. Do you see any role for journalism in our field in that way? Yeah, that's a good question because, you know, when we start to think about what we're talking about, um, I do think, again, the sort of size of the industry works against us because it's hard to have somebody who can stand really independently apart from um, you know, like if you're a professional organization, you're funded by membership and ad revenue and vendors and sponsors and all of those kinds of things. And so you can't probably have somebody, you know, writing your newsletter who's going out and debunking the um, things that your vendors and your sponsors are saying. Right. Uh, and you know, for obvious reasons, right? Like there's a relationship there and um, what are you going to do about that? Uh, you know, and I tend, I tend to resist being too strident about that as well because I'm not sure I think it's an effective, you know, to sort of go in and shame, shame organizations or something like that because I'm not sure ultimately it's an effective strategy. I think you piss a lot of people off and um, then they stop listening to you and where you might better kind of go in and, you know, sort of gently lean on the positive of, hey, here are some things that you might not be aware of. And here are some things you might want to look into that are better practices as opposed to, you know, you said the words learning style. So therefore we will condemn you, um, you know, <laughs> in, in virulent fashion. You know, because everything's always a little bit more complicated than you think it is, even the learning style stuff, despite the fact that the meta-analyses have come down very clearly on, you know, the inefficacy of um, differentiated instruction and things like that. That's actually not the same thing as saying learning styles don't exist in any form or not the same thing, you know, and 
They might not, but that's a different question. That's not the question that's been answered, which is this is probably not a good investment for your money um, uh, and effort, and you should be spending your, your money and effort elsewhere. Um, but if that seemed appealing to you, that doesn't make you a bad person. It's just, you know, on further investigation, you should, uh, um, you know, you should, you should look into this a little bit more before you, before you put dollars or uh, well, yeah. resources down. Well, and we can also uh, highlight the organizations that are doing a good job. They're using yeah. best practices. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned you know, that the trade associations in some way can't really, there, there, there may not be in a position to play the role of journalists. And I guess I'm always an idealist. And so I th I've always thought, hey, you're putting out a magazine for our field, for your members. You ought to do whatever you can to, you know, reveal the truth or, what, or you know, best practices, et cetera. But, you know, they've got uh, exhibit halls and, you know, folks coming to them um, that they're, you know, they need that, those funds to keep going. Yeah. So. Well, and, you know, I mean, how much is it uh, an association's job to say police what goes on in the exhibit hall? Not, I don't think it is, quite frankly. Um, now, the stuff that they're putting out in their magazines, their publications, they, sh they do have some responsibility there. Um, there was a, an organization and um, with absolutely the best intention in the world was trying to, you know, do more, have more, the community, their communities um, contribute more to, uh, you know, blog posts and different kinds of things like that. But they, they had one on that was focused more on learning science and the quality of stuff that was coming in was quite honestly not good enough. Um, you know, there was a, a lot of enthusiasm, but also a lot of misinformation. And, you know, I, I detailed some of that for them at the time. And they've done much better with it, you know, and it's not perfect. Nothing's perfect, but um, but I do believe that all of the uh, trade associations at least intend to to do well by that. And if they're not, you know, it's totally legitimate to kind of point out, "Hey, guys, this is a problem." Um, but uh, but I don't think um, I don't think that there is ever uh, you know sort of a shameless commerce. We don't care, and we're going to publish it anyway. Yeah, if we know. Right. So. Good. Julie, this has been great. Okay. Hopefully some of it's useful. <laughs> no, you do have insight into this. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> so thank you very much, Julie Dirksen. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, Will, those were great interviews. Thanks for doing them. Oh, my pleasure. So, wow, I, I kind of, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm, well, obviously I'm sounding speechless now. But my first thought uh, coming out of it was, I can't believe Will asked that question. That question just seemed like, ah. Uh, and those, both Ryan and Julie gave phenomenal answers that were nuanced and detailed and, and, got me really excited about the topic, listening to them, um, and, and to really start to ponder how we could uh, go about having 
and uh, an investigative component to our field uh, beyond just research, uh, and and not not just whether we should, but how we go about doing. Um, so, what were your, what were some of your initial reactions having the conversation with them? Well, Matt, first of all, I want to point out that you're being a little bit negative about my question. Well, yeah, it was horrible. I mean, I, I, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> so, um, Are you going to lose sleep over it? No, no, not okay, at all. Okay, good. I'm already sleeping. Yeah, I can do. Uh, <laughs> I really, I was impressed with both of their responses. They gave me things to think about that I hadn't thought about. And the one, one, my, the one thing that just was like a, a truck into the brain was kind of like, oh, we might not have an industry that's big enough to sustain journalism in the field. And part of me is like completely disappointed in this because I've had this idea that, wow, wouldn't it be great? You know, the rest of journalism is falling apart. Maybe we can bring some people into the field. Maybe we can get them focused on, you know, doing some great investigative journalism about some of the things that are going on to, you know, make it all better for everyone. But they sort of put a kibosh on that. Both of them said, I don't think the field is big enough to allow that. So I actually disagreed with that. Uh, by the way, I agreed with just about everything they said, but this is the one area I disagreed with because uh, some of the reasons they gave uh, uh, aligned with the notion that, you know, who's going to fund it and are there conflicts of interest and, um, you know, the people who are, are going to do this kind of work need to have both the independence and a livelihood right? You, you have to get paid to do this kind of work and it's, it's hard work to do if, if it's low pain or no pain. Um, and, and what are we actually investigating? You know, Ryan talked about uh, that, you know, hopefully there aren't too many issues around plagiarism or, or uh, bad things that are happening uh, among our colleagues. And, and I, I agree with him, but that doesn't mean there aren't interesting stories. Um, and the, the conflict of interest issue, well, even the New York Times takes sponsorships and, and has ads and, and uh, has an editorial board that uh, has its own biases. Uh, and they, they have mechanisms in place to keep the journalists independent from those things. And so the, it, it cannot or should not or need not be difficult. Um, uh, to, to manage independence. Um, well, okay, so let me ask you this. Do you feel that we have enough journalism in the workplace learning field now? No, no. And, and okay, well, then let me ask you a follow-up question. If, there, if, if, if they tell us the industry is not big enough for this, and you say it is, but you also agree that there's not enough good journalism going on now, what are the impediments and what can we do segment one in the field? I think segment one, I think there's a, a, a wide prevailing notion that, that journalism need be negative. And that if we are going to do investigations into the quality of our work and, and uh, the history behind who's doing the work and why they're doing it, that um, we have to, to couch it in positivity and, this just isn't necessarily accurate. Um, so I think there's this, that belief that we discussed around negativity and debunking. 
uh, as a negative, or I shouldn't use the word negative to talk about negativity, um, but the, the notion that negativity and debunking things are necessarily bad. And then I also think there's a, a notion that the stories we could tell through a, a journalistic approach aren't of interest. And I think part of that's because people haven't done it. The other part is people haven't seen what's been done. Ryan talks about your article about uh, the Kirkpatrick model and, and its beginnings. Um, I think the issue, reason that article isn't out there and being talked about is not enough people have seen it. It's a great article. Um, so part of it's getting stuff out there. Part of it is also funding uh, and having people take the time to find stories of interest. Um, well, you know, there are stories of interest. You got me thinking. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I'm in positive stories. I remember. That's what I mean. It doesn't have to be a bad uh, event that's happened. Yeah, I, I, I remember. And we all have lessons learned, right, in our personal life, right? We, we you know, maybe as a, as a young trainer, we would make these mistakes, and then somebody pulled us aside and told us how to do it. And that person changed the trajectory of our careers. Or right. I knew this guy named Howard. He worked for this uh, a big company, but it was a, in, in this plant uh, down in Louisiana and he had no resources whatsoever. So he personally went around and, and found these computers so that his folks could get this learning. And what, what a great story. This guy did this all on his own. Uh, so there are those, those positive Right. Stories are out there. And, you know, Ryan said something. He said, you know, it's not just investigative journalism. And I think you're, you're reflecting on that. He said, you know, just knowing what's going on in the field, you know, like the reporter on the ground going to the, uh, the local uh, councilman's, you know, council person's meeting, right? Um, what, what did they just talk about? You know, so you go to a trade show and people report on that. Now, there are citizen journalists out there, right? There's the bloggers, the, the tweeters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, okay, so. But, but Ryan brought up also the issue that a lot of these folks aren't trained. So, you know, 20 years ago, we were thinking about the democratization of journalism, right? With, with the advent of, of, of the internet and blogging and, and things like that. And and I think he's dead on. You know, there, there are ethics uh, that journalists uh, at the big papers have and, and that don't carry through to a lot of bloggers who are now making a lot of money doing it. Um, there are techniques and tools of the trade that many of these folks weren't taught. And so the quality of their investigations uh, are sometimes lacking. And so. So we do have a lot of opportunities and a lot of folks out there talking about things, tweeting things and stuff like that, but there should be a form formality to it. I think that's missing. And that's why I love this topic. I, th- I think there's no reason why we can't have this and more of it. Um, hmm. um, and it doesn't have to cost a lot. In fact, why can't we get grants? Everyone else gets a grant. You know, let's, Get, go out and get a grant to create some kind of project that's not for profit and, and, and for public uh, use. I, I like that idea of grants. You know, Franklin's are good too. Right. Um, you know, it, 
it makes me think we ought to have a we ought to hire a journalist to take some of our learning bloggers through this you know give them some impact that'd be fun i wonder if there's any interest in that and you know the other thing what about you know this is what julie said she said you know you can't really expect maybe she didn't say this you, you tell me what you think you can't really expect that the trade associations will be fully on board in this journalism, particularly in investigative journalism, because they've got vendors to satisfy. So, well, again, so uh, how's that different from the New York Times or the, 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 you know, or the LA Times or even USA Today? They all have vendors to, to please. Don't they have like a, there's this term they use in journalism, like a, some kind of wall or, or a, well, a firewall. Firewall, right. A firewall yeah. between the commercial side and right. the editorial or the business exactly. side. And, and even then you have editors who are helping to guide the content, right? And then you have an editorial board that is separate from that that can produce opinions. We don't have that. We do not have that in our... Exactly. We don't have any of that. But, but if this is going to be a, a, a forward-moving concept, then these are the types of structures we should be looking at, right? Absolutely. You know, right. this makes me think that we ought to uh, ask people, ask our listeners. Uh, I think we're up to four now, four or five. <laughs> well, my mom, so now five. Okay. Really? My mom would not sit through this. I, she couldn't. Oh, my mom listens to it while she's. You know, if you insult my face, how I look for radio, she's going to yeah. get very upset. She's going to come stomping up there, Matt. Well, I'm going to keep doing it until we get her as a listener. <laughs> so, so, but, but we should on. ask our listeners what they think. Do they see a need for journalism? Do they see any corruption that ought to be, you know, weeded out? Do they see any good stories that they'd like to tell. Maybe we could have people on telling positive stories or maybe negative stories too. We could, maybe we could modify their voices. So they don't, nobody knows. <laughs> you're, you're nuts. But I think we can also make it easy and not call it journalism per se, right? We can say, let's actually start validating that what we're talking about makes sense. Let's question uh, the, the models, resources, and tools we're using and have somebody that uh, investigates those. You know, it, maybe we don't need to use such aspirational language such as journalism. Maybe it's just simply saying, is this the right stuff? And let's research that. Um, you know, I, I, I know we don't call them journalists, but the work that people like Patty Shank does and the work that Julie does, when they write articles, these are journalistic pieces. They're, sometimes they're research-based, sure, but a lot of times what they're doing is synthesizing the research that's out there, or they're synthesizing different concepts and, and putting them into a coherent narrative. That's journalism. We just don't call it that. Okay. Right? I always thought of that as sort of research to practice, research translation, but sure, that could be under the broader scope of well, journalism. But that's exactly. a small part of of the field. What about, I mean, what about, let, let's take our authoring tools. Mm -hmm. uh, our authoring tools probably have some very great features and some ones that are weaker. Well, do we ever, you know, we have a discussion about that when we as an organization are deciding to buy one, but 
you know, or maybe occasionally an organization will come out with a review of all these, but I don't know. Do we, are we really getting enough information about those? And more importantly, are, is that debate bubbling up so that the vendors are then improving their product? Well, and, and this is the opportunity because a lot of, I've seen a ton of blogs out there that talk about the 10 best LMSs or the 10 best platforms for e-learning, blah, blah, blah. But these are blogs, and, and I'm sorry if you're, you're a blog, I put a little less faith in your, your authority, right? But if we are going to take that, we could easily take some of that work and, and put some rigor behind it. And when you put some rigor behind it, you have some great pieces. And we just need vehicles to publish these. Again, I don't think it's hard if, if there are people interested in doing it. I think as an industry, we, we have to keep talking about it and say, why aren't we exploring Kirkpatrick? I mean, other than you, who, who out there has challenged Kirkpatrick? Well, lots of people have challenged Kirkpatrick. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about, you know, in terms of the credibility of the model in uh, using research and investigative uh, information about how it was created. Uh, well, I mean, no. There aren't that many people that are going toe-to-toe and saying, hey, this is something we should be looking at. And like I said, I think if more people read your article, more people would also be interested in exploring other things. All right. Well, let's get it out there. We'll, we'll put that article in the, in the Yeah. Yeah, I episode. think that's a great idea. Notice. That's a great idea. Right. Anyway, I think we should send another thanks to Ryan and Julie, and it would be great to get them on the show again and so forth. So, absolutely. All right, moving on to our last topic, the top three research-based learning factors. So, first of all, I, I had to clarify this with you. What do you mean uh, by research-based learning factors? Well, listen, I, we, we knew we were going to start segment one off by talking about being negative and debunking and all that. And, you know, I know people hate that if you just focus on the negative, right? So I wanted to end on the positive. So people want to know what you and I think are some of the most important learning factors. What should we design into our uh, learning program to make sure they're effective? And, you know, we're going to come up with some answers today. They might not be definitive, but at least get people thinking about maybe the right direction. And we can, okay. again, we can ask our listener to come and comment as well. Great. All right. So should we do three from you and three for me? Uh, what if they're the same? Well, then we get to say ditto. Oh, okay. Well, who gets to go first then? Who, who gets to seem enlightened? Uh, why don't you, you go because I don't need to prove it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> all right you know negativity makes a podcast you know you gotta I know, have right yeah. i know it's like well, number one all right so um well i'm going to talk about three things that are really good at helping us support remembering oftentimes we forget that we think we just create learning well learning by itself is not good enough because if people learn and then they forget well haven't done much. So there's three things that really support remembering. The first is 
to design our learning in such a way that it aligns with the performance contexts that our learners are going to go into after they're done the training. Okay, so if we know that we're teaching managers and they're going to be in staff meetings, we ought to think about how they're going to interact in staff meetings, right? That's our focus. We know if we create exercises and things focused on those kind of situations that they're going to find themselves in, that uh, that's going to be real powerful because it's going to create and enable spontaneous remembering. They're going to go back into those formative situations in the context, the stimuli in those environments are going to remind people of what they learned. They're more likely to remember them. So that's number one. Number two is uh, retrieval practice. We know that we shouldn't just throw information at people, that they need to um, actually practice it, uh, retrieve it, retrieve information from memory in, in the similar ways that they're going to do on the job. If we combine these first two learning factors, the context alignment notion, the retrieval practice, we get this thing, the technical term for it is realistic practice. We should be doing that. And then the third thing is we should be spacing repetitions over time. And what's really great is we can space repetitions of realistic practice over time, and there we are supporting long-term remembering. Voila, those are my three. All right. I'm going to focus on uh, the motivational aspects of learning and talk about three of the basic psychological needs that all we humans seem to have. Now, to give you a source for this before I dive into it, uh, this comes out of the work of self-determination theory, uh, originated by two guys, Edward D.C. and Richard Ryan from the University of Rochester. Uh, there's an in huge, huge, over, uh, gosh, it's been almost 40 years now of constant replicated research uh, in this field. So uh, feel free to just Google self-determination theory, uh, and you'll find a truckload of resources on this. But anyway. In SDT, they talk a lot about three basic psychological needs, a need for competence, a need for autonomy, and a need for relatedness. Each of these needs can be translated into a learning perspective. So, for example, when I'm talking about the need to feel competent, what we want to do is focus on enhancing our participants' sense of capability, the knowledge and skill that they have around the topic and the uh, ability, the time, the resources, the tools they have to do the task at hand. So the more we can level set that challenge so it's not boring or too frustrating, the more we can engage with them around a competence factor, right? And we can do that pragmatically through different games, learning games, uh, and, and increase competence uh, factors over time. As, as the game gets more challenging, you can see that in simulations, both low fidelity and high fidelity. Uh, so we can really drive home this scaled increase in a sense of competence over time. The second one is autonomy, a need to feel autonomous when engaging with, with the topic. And what that really means, it's, it's not having a lot of choices because we can often be coerced into doing things where we're given choices nonetheless. But it's really about choosing, uh, see I used the word choice, I shouldn't have done that. It's really about volitionally engaging with it. Uh, so in other words, I see meaning, I see purpose, I see value in learning this topic. 
there's meaning in it. And uh, we often talk about it as high relevance when we're dealing with learning, right? So the participants see that relevance factor. And we can get to that, again, using different types of interactive strategies. Uh, So I mentioned simulations and games, but there are other types of activities like jolts, um, there are magic tricks, there are different types of, of subsets of games and so forth that help introduce that, that sense of relevance um, uh, to the task at hand. You also can see this through on-the-job training. You can see this uh, when uh, uh, participants are running into a roadblock at work and they don't know how to get over it, so you can focus on the competence piece and the relevance piece and so forth. And then finally, the, the need to feel related to those people around you. So this is one of the arguments for, for not having people learn solely on their own, but working through uh, lessons with colleagues who are going through the same thing. Um, we all have a need to feel like we belong. And, and this sense of belonging can be, I don't want to use the word leveraged, but used to have people do uh, co-teaching, peer teaching, uh, to experience uh, failing together and then finding ways to overcome it, uh, to support each other if and when they're bordering on frustration and so forth. And so we can find ways for people to relate to each other, relate to the organization, and relate to the facilitators and trainers. So those are the three I would recommend. Now, sounds good. Now, I know that one of the things they focus on is the difference between intrinsic yeah, extrinsic rewards. What, which ones should I be giving as a trainer? Well, should I, should so I be throwing out, should I be throwing out uh, uh, cooch balls and things like that? Well, so it's, it's more nuanced than just a simple yes or no. Um, so first of all, think of it as a, a, a continuum. On the far right side of the continuum, you have what's called intrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motivation is when we do a task for the pure, pure passion of it, right? We, we find in, uh, our well-being is enhanced. We feel good doing it. We like it and so forth. On the far left side of the continuum, you have what's called a motivation, which is a sense of helplessness or hopelessness toward uh, completing the task. So if you think about it from a learning standpoint, I can feel completely apathetic toward learning it, or I could be all the way to the other side intrinsically motivated to learn it. In the middle of that continuum, you have what's called extrinsic motivation. Extrinsic motivation is when I do the task, I'm motivated to do it, but I do it for extrinsic reasons, in other words, controlling reasons. And that in of itself is a continuum. I can do it for very, very controlling reasons, like you pay me off or you're threatening to hurt me and I want to avoid that or you're going to punish me if I don't do it. Uh, I can do it for less controlling reasons where I might do it out of guilt or I might do it out of a sense of obligation or I might do it because it makes my ego feel better. As we move closer toward being more intrinsically motivated, I might do it because I've internalized uh, uh, the reason intellectually, it makes sense for me. I see the value in it, but it's not necessarily for passionate reasons that I do it. And we move into intrinsic motivation. So there are many reasons why we might address or 
or complete a task or learn something. So having said that, you have to look at where a person might fall on that continuum. And that's very hard to diagnose in of itself. But if I have a person who is completely apathetic, it's usually because they don't think they can do the task. They have no sense of competence. So even bribing them or paying them off isn't going to work. So we need to get them over that hump. And there are a whole series of different learning uh, uh, interventions we can employ. Alternatively, if they feel they can do it, they feel they can learn it, but they don't want to, then we might want to use the koosh ball and the candy and money and other factors that might get them over that hump. And then we have to wean them off those rewards as we, we get them more engaged and interested and see higher levels of relevance. So you have to identify where they fall, right? If you have a highly passionate person and then you start handing them money for doing the task, you could totally undermine that passion. And so it's, it's a complex thing. I actually wrote an article on this, and I'd be happy to put, post the article on it as well. Awesome. On specifically applying self-determination theory to learning. Great. So if we combine what you were talking about regarding motivation and what I was talking about, supporting re- retrieval and, and memory mm-hmm. and all those things, we can get people motivated to practice. Cool. So let, let's move into best and worst. And, okay. um, and uh, Will, do you have a, a, a worst from last week? Well, I have a worst that came across my desk uh, this morning. I got an email from uh, a longtime correspondent of mine. And uh, she said, uh, uh, Hi, Will. I hope you're well. Without taking up too much of your time, and since I emphatically trust you, do you have any high-level opinions about these slides or the author? My manager sent this to me following this webinar and she, that she attended. <laughs> so I opened up this deck of slides, and uh, it was, the subject matter was uh, brain-based approaches to enhancing learning retention. And it looked like it was a webinar or something. And, uh, well, I was, I was kind of appalled. Uh, the things they were talking about were not really brain-based per se. You know, the, the brain-based is like a way to say it's neuroscience kind of. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't really neuroscience. They talked about spacing and a few other things. Uh, it kind of missed the mark. And so that's my worst of the episode. All right. What's your best? My best, I would like to acknowledge the work of uh, Mike Taylor. And, uh, oh, yeah. He's great. He is great. Every once in a while, he comes out with, like, and, and he, I guess it's journalism, right? Um, he comes out with some phenomenal list that's really meant to support those of us in the field. He had a list of tools that we might want to use. He came out with that one recently. He also had a a great list of uh, sort of uh, research-based sources, people to talk to. And uh, we'll put his uh, website in the the show notes. 
and uh, just wanted to do a call out to Mike Taylor. I think that's great and well-deserved. So my worst has to do with, well, perceived plagiarism. So more and more I'm finding um, tools, models, concepts, even complete paragraphs taken from articles people we know have written and repurposed and republished on either LinkedIn or Facebook or, or put into courses and so forth. And, and I've taken it upon myself to sometimes question or challenge this. And the answer I get is, what's wrong with it? And even if it's attributed, do you have permission? No, we didn't ask permission, but we gave him credit. And I think we've, we've uh, I've hit a wall this week, this past week on seeing this over and over again, that there isn't even a courtesy of asking anymore. People just blatantly take other people's intellectual property and use it. And uh, I find that troubling. Um, mind you, at the same time, if someone ever asks for anything we've done, we give it to them. But we like to be asked. Um, and I think, I think this actually could be a good topic for us at some point, um, intellectual property and how to go about using it. That's good. Uh, but it, that's been bugging me this week. As well it should. Um, in terms of the good, um, the, we, we have a client in France that uh, I'm very happy about. Um, they, this has nothing to do with us. It's just something I've, I've, I've been witnessing. They've been running their trainers and instructional designers through learning science programs. So they've been putting their folks through basic statistics workshops, putting their folks through how to look up stuff and how to do basic research. So research methodology, how to ask critical thinking questions. In essence, they're giving them a mini MBA on critical thinking. And this, uh, again, I wish it had to do with, with us or they'd hired us to do it, but they're doing this all on their own. And, and I found it inspiring uh, that, that a company was actually starting to question how much money it was putting down the drain uh, on bad things and wanted to do something about it. So that was cool. That's cool, and it fits into our theme of the show. It does. It does. Perfect. So, all right. Well, that was a that, that's a wrap for for the day. Can you believe we've knocked out five of these already? Is it five? Yeah, yeah. this is number five. Awesome. So, like I said last week, uh, we'll know we've done a lot of these when we forget what number we're on. And and we're gonna we're gonna publish these every other Thursday. Is that where we're going with now? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, every th- every other Thursday, midnight Thursday, right? So on the so, cusp between yeah, Wednesday and Thursday. Exactly, exactly. So hopefully it'll work um, and, and go into your feed. We just figured out how to get it up on on iTunes and and which will put it into a whole bunch of other feeding apparati. Is it apparati? The plural. Uh, that sounds too much like a conspiracy theory. <laughs> I think that's Illuminati. That you're- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, all right, Will, I'll talk to you in two. Thank you, Matt. Take care.